0: Welcome back, Justin. Happy 2024. Welcome back, everybody.
1: Yeah, it's been a little while, but we had a nice break, and uh, we are back with some new episodes for 2024. We like to do themes around here, even though Valentine's Day is not really, a, I think, a holiday that either of us really celebrate that much. But seemed like a perfect pick for this particular month uh, doing the Before trilogy, which I think altogether is like a really different and interesting take on a romance type movie. I don't know if I would categorize it as rom-com, but it definitely has all the hints of like a quote unquote romance type movie. There's a lot of talk about love and relationships and, you know, spending time together and how things are serendipitous.
0: And the movies, of course, that we're talking about are Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and Before Midnight, all directed by Richard Linklater, co-written by him, as well as the stars of the film, too. I can't wait to get into this. It had been a long time since I had watched all of these especially in succession they're really different when you watch them independently of each other and the feeling that you're left with with the characters and the overall feel of the movie when you watch them independently of each other um, versus one right after the other and I did that last night and man what a trip and it's about it's not that long of a trip actually like four and a half five hours not too bad.
1: And I think these are uh, interesting movies to talk about, especially in present day, because uh, every day I'm reminded of something I did a decade ago on Facebook, you know? <laughs> and so it's just like, uh, and I, you know, you look at those photos and you're like, who is that person? You know, what was I thinking? And I was like, yeah you know, I can look at a photo from 10 years ago and think like, oh man, that's awesome. You're probably having the best time. And for all I know that day, I was like, this is just the worst day ever. So um, time is very strange in how we, reflect on it and how we again like romanticize a certain aspects of our life and i think that's a lot of what this movie talks about um and what the characters are trying to tap into
0: and when starting out with before sunrise it it was never planned to be um something that would be sequelized ever so um I think knowing that going into it and thinking about how it was built upon afterwards, it kind of turns into this whole other animal. The overall feel for me with every one of these movies is living in the moment, which is something that's really hard to do, especially in 2024 with technology and just where we are as a society. And uh, I think it was an interview with Ethan Hawke where he said his daughter watched uh, these movies with her friends, and they were envious of a time when you weren't connected to a phone, you weren't connected to email, and and it really, like you, were able to just like be present with somebody else, and and be able to connect with someone like that, and and it makes, um, you know, you were saying like this idea of romanticizing um a connection with someone. Back then, like in nineteen ninety four or ninety five, like you really could make the decision to be like, we're gonna just hang out for like this yeah. entire day and like see what happens.
1: Oh, there's still people I think about uh, you know, like when I would do like a summer camp and then yeah. I, like I can picture their face but I can't picture their name and you just think that, you know, in modern times you'd immediately after you met someone, you'd be like, Oh, well, I'll friend you later on yeah. Facebook. And it, there's no mystery. There's no like, <laughs> yeah. you know, wondering like, Oh, will I ever cross paths with this person again? And so these movies are really interesting in the sense that they started in a time pre social media and being able to find people so easily. And then, you know, the last one took place as early as like, just a little under a decade ago. And so, it's uh, it's interesting just seeing those characters in that world, but at the at the same time, I like it because Linklater doesn't focus on that. You know, he doesn't mm-hmm. make that a part of the story. It just it's it's ever present in the movies, but they're not really commenting on that, which I do like because it makes it more natural, not so much like a hey, we're doing a nostalgia piece or something like that, which I have constantly appreciated Linklater not falling into, even though his movies do seem to live in that pocket you know, with days of confused or everybody wants some, like he seems to make movies that people find nostalgia in, but he doesn't seem like he's doing it in a cheesy way or a forced way. And even when he does these projects that sometimes lean in a more experimental way, he doesn't come off as pretentious. He just seems like a very open-minded, creative filmmaker who's willing to take chances. And I would say 70% of the time he knocks these out of the park he you know he's had a couple movies that you know didn't work as well but like most of these movies feel like very natural and very of the moment and very creative and have a lot of heart and don't feel trite in any way
0: and we'll get into the story where where this uh idea of before sunrise came from and i think when you hear that story you'll even more so think link wasn't like setting out to do something that was um cerebral in a way it was like it was really like really based on an experience that he had which um even grounds the film even more in reality even though it feels magical at times yeah before it, sunrise i should say it feels magical at times
1: and Linklider's interesting because he's this very i mean if you listen to any interview with him or watch any thing about him he's this very laid-back soul who seems to work in a very slow relaxed way of like thinking and like here I'm going to do this project and I'm going to do something that's interesting to me um but at the same time it's like so prolific I mean he's got he's so many made so many films compared to other filmmakers and granted a lot of movies he makes are able to be done on a low budget and shot very quickly but he never really seems to be sitting around like pondering what he's going to do next it's like something fascinates him he's like okay let's go do this thing and that's we'll talk about that with these movies because it seems like the last two came about in that very same way of like, hey, wouldn't it be interesting if we did this? And instead of really thinking about it for too long, they were like, let's just go for it and see what happens and ended up making one of the best trilogies of all time.
0: we'll talk about the... Themes that start out in Before Sunrise and the ones that um, continue throughout the series, how they evolve, how the characters evolve. the I mean, I think the evolution of these characters is probably the most important thing to me. Um, their relationship the conflicts that happen. And there's so many films where, you know, we're talking here and you'll be like, it just, you know, it felt so real. The dialogue felt so real. But like, it really does. And that's one of the greatest things about this series is that it feels like a camera is really just following Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. But it, I mean, it was completely scripted. Everything's very scripted in this film, but it doesn't feel like that. And for me, and I don't know anybody else out there who's had a similar experience that is either one or all of these films. If you have had a, a experience like that, this is really gonna like hit you in the gut. Um, and if you haven't, um, it's gonna feel like this is something that's accessible that could happen.
1: We'll talk about Linklater's style a little bit too and how uh, he really does have this ability to make this type of film that I think in, in the wrong hands would just be a total snooze fest yes. and he somehow 100%. manages to not make it feel like some we're trying to make a documentary type thing or we're trying to do an experiment it feels like you know i we keep going back to the word natural but it just it feels like these characters are living breathing and link lighter turned on a camera but it didn't happen that way i mean he's he's very methodical at times in the way he wants the characters to live in the moment and the way they're scripted and the style in which it's shot, but it doesn't feel cold. It doesn't feel uh, mechanical. It just feels like we're watching these characters almost in a voyeuristic way at times. And these characters, interesting enough, in that we'll talk about the actors and their contributions to the script and and developing these characters over time because there's so much going on um, over the course of these three films um, that the characters deal with and their love and hate for each other.
0: So this episode really is going to follow kind of the same vibe of the trilogy. Like we're yeah. just going to kind of flow through it um, in a very easy way.
1: Since we're covering three films, it would just be too long. I think we're. it made sense to not do a pick of the week, not do a Murray moment. Uh, let's just talk about these three films and I'll kind of slip in some clips here and there. But uh, this might be a little more freeform than we normally do. But I think it works for these particular movies that we're talking about.
0: And I apologize in advance if my voice starts cutting out. I'm getting over a little bit of the, a touch of the flu. So I might start sounding like Kathleen Turner's cousin right now. Yeah. I wish. God. I
1: hate that it's uh, 2024 <laughs> and uh, you still have to preface everything via text with a, uh, it's not COVID. It's not COVID. Uh, <laughs> I'm just not feeling well. I'm like, all right, <laughs> we can do this episode. Yeah. I'm glad we didn't have to push it a little bit.
0: I didn't want to do this in a mask. That would have been terrible.
1: Yeah. Ugh. Well, Lindsay, before we get into a clip here, and I'm going to pick one. Well, I'll try to do the clips in order of the movies that came out. But uh, before we get into it, do you want to set up just a brief summary of just what all three of these movies combine, kind of this universe that we're living in with these characters?
0: I'll do my best. How to summarize an 18-year love story. Well, it begins with Before Sunrise, a story about a chance encounter of two strangers on a train from Budapest to Vienna. Seizing the opportunity for true human connection, Jesse and Celine decide to disembark from the train and spend half a day through the evening until the early morning together in Vienna until the sun rises, when they're forced to part ways, returning to their normal lives. In what felt like a true cosmic connection like they both never experienced, sharing life experiences, philosophies about anything that came to mind, and a genuine attraction to each other's nature, it was unsure if Celine or Jesse would ever see each other again until the second installment, Before Sunset, where Jesse finds himself in Paris nine years later on a book tour for his novel about his life-changing experience with Celine that one night. And as Celine is a resident of Paris and happened to see a flyer for Jesse's event, the reconnection was inevitable. But with only just 80 minutes left before needing to board his plane, Jesse and Celine have only a short time to cram in the nine years of what they've missed, how they've changed, be reminded of their feelings for each other, though not much help is needed there, as both have been forever changed by their previous one night together. But their lives are so different now. Are they ever going to see each other after this encounter? And flash forward nine years later and before midnight, and we find Selene and Jesse are now a full-fledged couple since the end of Before Sunset. With twin girls in tow, the couple's vacationing in Greece on a writer's retreat, traversing the stressors of being in a long-term relationship, parenting, the future, insecurities, and everything in between. Though the couple still connects as much as they ever have, know each other better than anyone else. Do they still love each other? Are they still in this love affair together? This 18-year love story can feel like a familiar journey for some, a complete idolization to others, or a magical, honest portrayal of a relationship. Any way you slice it, the Before trilogy is unlike any other sequelized story out there, and if you're open to it, it's going to linger in your heart just as much as the love shared between Celine and Jesse.
1: That was a really good way to wrap up two decades' worth of characters.
0: There's so much cutting out there, but that's, you know, trying to link all of them together.
1: Well, we'll talk about it more. we come back let's go to a clip for before sunrise and uh see how these characters first meet
2: so how do you speak such good english i went to
3: school for a summer in los angeles
1: yeah it's fine here. yeah that's good
2: i
3: spent some time in london
2: uh
3: wow how do you speak such good english
2: me i'm american you're american yeah are you sure yeah
3: (laughs) no i'm joking I knew you were American. And of course you don't speak any other language, right?
2: Yeah, 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 I get it, I get it. So I'm the crude, dumb, vulgar American who doesn't speak any other languages, who has no culture, right? But I tried. I took uh, French for four years in high school. When I first got to Paris, I stood in line at the metro station. I was practicing. In b a s'il vous plaît. Un biais, s'il vous plaît, um, you yeah. know? you uh <laughs> I'm BS play. I'm BS you know. And I get up there and uh, I look at this woman and my mind goes completely blank and I start saying, ah, listen, ah, I need a ticket to get to um you know, so anyway. Um so where are you headed?
3: Well back to Paris. Um my class start next week.
2: Now uh, you're still in school, where do you go?
3: Yeah, La Sorbonne, you know.
2: Yeah, uh, sure. Are really? uh, you coming from Budapest?
3: Yeah, I was visiting my grandmother.
2: Oh, uh, how's she? <laughs> She's okay. She's
3: all right. She's fine. How about you? Where are you going?
2: Uh, I'm going to Vienna.
3: Vienna? What's there?
2: Uh, I have no idea. I'm flying out of there tomorrow. Huh. You're on holiday? Uh, I don't really know what I'm on. You know? Okay. I'm just uh, <laughs> I'm just traveling around. I've been riding the trains for the past two, three weeks.
3: Mm-hmm. You were visiting friends, or just on your own? Though?
2: Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, I had a friend in Madrid, but, um...
3: Madrid, that's nice. Yeah, stuff. I got one of
2: those Uriel passes, what I did.
3: That's great. So has this trip around <laughs> Europe been good for you?
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's been, um, it sucked, you know? What? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it hasn't... Ah, it's had it's, its, um, well, no, I'll tell you, you know, Sitting, you know, for weeks on end, looking out the window has actually been kind of great.
1: So we've done a Linklater film before, Days of Confused, and I didn't look back on that episode to see how much we went into Linklater's backstory. I'm guessing we probably did a little bit, so I won't uh, regurgitate too much of that here. But just to re-familiarize everyone with Richard Linklater, he is a Texas filmmaker. He's remained in Texas. Uh, He grew up in Huntsville and was uh played baseball not he doesn't really seem like the your typical film person you know was like an athlete very popular wasn't dark and brooding really well read and instead of going to new york or los angeles uh he was interested in film but he went to austin texas in his 20s and austin texas uh was a different place. I mean, if you've been there recently, it it was a different place in the eighties. It was like a very sleepy town. There was an art scene, but it was like, you could afford to live there. A lot of people lived there, were in their twenties. There was a thriving art scene. And so Linklater kind of worked his way into being one of those first breakout filmmakers. I mean, there were filmmakers in the seventies in Austin that kind of made a name for themselves, like Toby Hooper and Eagle Pinnell, but Linklater was like the next generation of that. And In the late 80s, he started working on a movie called Slacker, which if you haven't seen, it's really worth a watch. It's one of those movies, I think, that in the early 90s changed the way you thought how a film could be made. In the same way Jim Jarmusch did with Stranger Than Paradise, uh, Slacker didn't focus on one particular character or plot. It kind of floated around the city of Austin and went from one person to the next. Very segmented, but not like short story-wise, you know, there even really wasn't a story or based around each character. They were just kind of like what was happening that day in Austin. And it's a funny, experimental, unique movie made for like very, very little money on 16mm, but that movie Slacker became Link Ladder's calling card and was able to get him interviews with producers and to get funding for his next movie that most people are familiar with that's become... Kind of a cult classic, and that's Days of Confused, which again was all shot in Austin or in Texas, and used a you know a lot of local crew. And Linklater maintaining his roots and staying in Texas, even though he was getting bigger budgets. I mean, he's gone and shot elsewhere, and shot the Before Trilogy elsewhere, but. Um, A lot of times his return to Texas to shoot his movies or edit them there and stays there. And if you listen to our episode on Days Confused, we really couldn't find Linklater saying very many positive things about the experience of shooting that movie. (laughs) Other than him gaining experience working with a studio and working with more seasoned actors, um, he really felt pretty defeated by producers coming down on him and saying he couldn't do certain things and not letting him do things the way he wanted and also not trusting him as an artist or a filmmaker because he had only made one low budget movie that a lot of people didn't even really deem a movie. And so he really struggled, but the success of Days Confused allowed him some leverage in Hollywood and amongst young actors who saw Dazing Infused and gravitated toward it, and said that's a filmmaker that I want to work with. And I think that has really been Linklater's draw for his entire career. Is like actors want to work with him, even actors that are, you know, really well known and normally get paid big bucks. They will do a smaller film if Linklater's a director, and he's worked with so many amazing actors throughout his career. Um, and it's continued to do like small movies, and then he'll do a big, big budget movie. Not, we're not talking like Scorsese big, but you know, within the Hollywood systems, he's continued to go back to studios. But um, early in his career, it was like a bit shaky. You know, he's coming off of Days of confused. He's feeling very disillusioned with, you know, I don't want to move to LA. I want to make movies, but I don't want to deal with this Hollywood system again, having someone tell me, um, every single day, like what you're doing is wrong and you need to cut things from your script. And so there was a a year went by or so before he decided that he wanted to make another movie and the opportunity to make Before Sunrise, um, started becoming more of a reality to him.
0: And though Linklater had had the opportunity now to do Slacker and Dazed and Confused, um, Before Sunrise, the idea for this, the genesis behind it, started a good four or five years before when he was first kind of promoting Slacker. I think he had just gotten back from New York, and he was in Philadelphia, um, about ready to head back to Austin. And as the story goes, he was with a friend at a toy store waiting for his friend to check out, and he notices this uh, clerk at the toy store. Her name was Amy Lairhaupt, and... um, Was just kind of, you know, taken with her. And so he kind of slipped her a note and it said something like, hey, I'm in town for one night if you want to hang out. And she slips him a note back that says, I'll be off at 10. And with that, they spent the entire night together walking around Philadelphia. Um, and thus was born kind of this idea that was behind Before Sunrise. And Linklater really felt like this was a, a moment of genuine connection that he had with someone. Something that was a moment that was just so beautiful that he he hadn't experienced with anyone. And, and something that, um, you know, it dawned on him. You don't really have these moments of true connection with someone. And he realized it in the moment of hanging out with her that like, man, this would make an amazing story just this idea of a first encounter with someone this uh, flirtation and kind of back and forth and just kind of vibing off of each other and then having to part ways and i think a lot of people can identify with that rush of meeting somebody new that's unexpected and you know yeah you are inspired and linklater certainly was Um, So he kind of always had this story in the back of his head that if it was going to be something that he was going to make, it needed to be minimal and really focused on the interaction between these two people. Um, He started thinking more about this story uh, later on when he was in Europe. He started thinking about Amy and how they had lost touch. And though they stayed in contact and exchanged letters for a little while, their connection eventually kind of just faded out and they lost contact. Linklater said he always hoped that he would run into her one of these days or somehow make some type of reconnection. And he has said that making Before Sunrise was kind of, you know, not that he thought getting this movie out there was going to have her running back to his arms or something, but he thought hey, you know, maybe, maybe she will see this and maybe we will make some type of reconnection.
1: And in starting the process to write the script for Before Sunrise, Linklater wanted to have a woman's perspective on the script. And since it was a equal parts dialogue of male and female, he chose to work with uh, one of his friends, Kim Krizan, who had a small part in Slacker. She also had a small role in Days Confused, uh, really funny role that she wrote her dialogue for. She's a teacher telling them what Independence Day truly is all about and how they should think about it before they take off for the holiday. Hey guys, one more thing. Hey, this summer, when you're being inundated with all this American Bicentennial Fourth of July brouhaha, don't forget what you're celebrating, and that's the fact that a bunch of slave-owning aristocratic white males didn't want to pay their taxes. And so her and Link got together. She had never written a script before, but had come from somewhat of a writing background, was excited for the challenge. So they got together, and Austin started working on the script for Before Sunrise and developing the story, developing the characters, and working in the scenario which Link had spent with this woman in Philadelphia, how they'd spent the evening together, and sort of having that be a shell of the movie, but then really... Intricately building who these characters are, why they were traveling, um, where they were in their lives, but having that come out in natural conversation. And
0: I think it was Kim's idea, even though Linklater was was known to like travel on trains in Europe, um, from you know Philadelphia to Austin and and around the United States. I think it was Kim's idea to have this set on a train, and she thought that with Linklater's tendency to um, lean towards stories that happen in one day that meeting on a train would be perfect for that. And she herself remembers so many um, interactions with people that she had on trains and, you know, never saw them again. It's totally true. It it is like a great setup for um, the first meeting of people.
1: And I do love the uh, beginning of Before Sunrise because we see a similar shot that Linklater had used in Slacker where someone's watching the world go by, you know, as a passenger, and then the movie kind of opens up and that character starts saying, you know, why they are there, where, why they're existing, why they went on this trip, why they're a passenger. You know, I think it is something that is really easy to uh, dismiss in our everyday lives. People are constantly traveling. I've been on plenty of trains, and I've never really considered, like, why anybody is where they're going, what their story is, because a lot of times, you know, you get... On a plane or a train and the, what you want to do is like get headphones on and just kind of like try to suffer through this. But maybe that's American travel, you know, like it seems to be a lot more luxurious traveling in other countries on trains.
0: You never make up stories about people in your head or like
1: I with mean, somebody that you're with? Really? Maybe if I'm getting really bored, but usually I just try to put on headphones and block everything out until I get to my destination so I can get out of my cramp. I'm a tall person, too, so I'm usually cramped in wherever transportation I'm in I'm I don't have a lot of leg room and I'm just counting my moments before I can stretch my legs I guess that doesn't make for a very interesting movie
0: okay just a
1: cramped guy with headphones on
0: (laughs) no I guess I'm usually the person who's looking out the window or daydreaming if I'm by myself I'm totally making up a story about someone in in my head or if I'm with somebody else maybe I'm just the annoying companion that's like hey look at that guy over there
1: But there is something, I I like how this movie is presented in the way of like, Ethan Hawke is an American traveler and he's in another country, you know, that's established immediately in the movie. It's interesting in the way of like, you know, he's in his twenties, he can be whoever he wants to be. He's only going to be here for a short amount of time. And I think we all have those tiny little fantasies of like, you know, you go somewhere for a day and no one knows you. And I mean, you don't have to be entirely yourself, you know, and, and you, you know, I mean, and Naturally, you're going to act differently when you're out of your house and you're in a place you've never been before. You know, your senses are different and what you're focusing on is different. And I think uh, a lot of that goes into this movie is these little idiosyncratic things of like these characters dealing with the time that they have. And then this uh, excitement of like meeting somebody new, having there be somewhat of an immediate attraction to each other and then wanting to kill the time by having a a good conversation but then when that time is up it's like oh man I don't want this to end and now there's the the dilemma of like which character is going to have the gall to say hey do you want to keep on talking or just uh you know write it off as being like oh we were just two people having a quick conversation but then you know being faced forever with that what if i would have asked for this person's number what if i would have done this there's a lot of these it's a it's a real big what if movie and it's addressed immediately with ethan Hawke saying like hey i gotta get off but i'd love it if you got off this train with me and hung out with me for this evening because i can't afford to stay at a hotel so i'm just gonna like walk around vienna all evening
0: Which seems like a leap, I think, to to some people. But Linklater brings up a really good um, idea and, and kind of explanation in that when you are traveling, especially for an American abroad you are more likely to kind of throw caution to the wind. And it doesn't seem like Celine is too put off by even being asked by it. And she's familiar with the train system. And it's a very like the euro rail is used very commonly. So the idea of getting off and then if it doesn't work out, getting just back on, you know, 20 minutes later, doesn't seem like a big deal. So I I really do buy into this idea of if someone asked me and we were having this magical moment and I had 24 hours to kill or 12 hours to kill, I could totally see how this would really happen.
1: And I I love this meetup and I love Ethan Hawke's character in the sense of how it's created, not Via stereotypes, you know, not the ugly American. I mean, they kind of address that a little bit in the movie, but, you know, because he can only speak English, but she makes fun of him a lot. For being she, American. Makes, she makes fun of him a lot. But I do like the idea that uh, it is plausible. I buy Ethan Hawke's characters being interesting enough to charm this woman who seems much more worldly than him, totally. much more mature than he is. But at the same time, he's not devoid of these American stereotypes of like, you know, he's very aggressive, upfront about being like a horn dog.
0: Aggressive, happening. not in a mean way. Not in a mean way, yeah. but
1: like kind of just very... Forward. Forward and forceful with like his opinions. which yes. yes. Which when you watch the movie now, his character is a little bit grating at times. And there's a moment where there's a street poet and he's being so blatantly cynical about the street poet.
0: And the fortune teller.
1: And the fortune teller, like, sure. oh, they're just trying to make a buck. And she is a little more open to it. And she she's aware of these, you know, she's not denying what he's saying, but this is something that happens in another country and this is unfamiliar to him in America. You don't see very many street poets or street fortune tellers walking around where he's from in Texas. So he's immediately, you know, a cynical American about it and not just letting, letting the night progress. And so there's times where you want to like, Rib him and say, "Man, enjoy this moment with you know you're kind of making an ass out of yourself." But at the same time, it feels very natural, and I'm glad that that's in there because if he was devoid of all that, you'd almost think like, "Oh, were they trying to make him not so American to fit this movie that's not taking place in America?"
0: When I first rewatched this, I immediately was very put off by the character of Jesse and was very taken with the character of Celine because Jesse does come off as kind of like macho a little bit and that guy would not make me get off a train with him or I would not want to get off a train with that guy but in subsequent rewatches I found that it was maybe more like he was just immature and insecure really it wasn't that he really had that he had a little bit of bravado but it was all kind of fake a little bit Um, and maybe I'm off base on that but in seeing his transition over over the next you know 18 years that's how he looks to me now and he looks so young compared to like who he is later even though he is kind of the same exact person um in before midnight as he is in before sunrise but i'm getting ahead of myself
1: the way he is in before sunrise you know there's a 10-year gap between these two movies and when we revisit him it's believable to me that he would have become a writer even though he has this immaturity in the first film he is interested in the arts. He's interested in studying people and like experiences. You know, he doesn't want to just stay in one place and be comfortable. Um, He likes to challenge himself. And so it, it does feel like there's a natural progression of like, oh, this guy would have written a book and he would have really thought about this experience, this deep moment that he had with Celine and put it on paper and then would be doing a book reading somewhere in another country, and to me, it's like a good way to transition a sequel with characters that you no one had really thought about. We're gonna do something with this very low budget movie that made like fifteen million dollars at the box office. It cost like four million to make. It seems like an unlikely sequel and a very unlikely trilogy for how much they go together. So cohesively, cohesively, yeah. Let's take a quick break there. Um, let's go to another clip of Jesse and Celine hanging out in Before Sunrise. We'll be back.
3: You know, I've been wondering lately. Do you know anyone who's in a happy relationship?
2: Uh, yeah, sure. You know, I know happy couples. But I think they lie to each other.
3: <laughs> yeah. People can live their own life as a light. My grandmother, she was married to this man and I always thought she had a very simple, uncomplicated love life. But she just confessed to me that she spent her whole life dreaming about another man she was always in love with. She just accepted her fate. It's so sad. And in the same time, I love the idea that she had all those emotions and feelings I never thought she would have had.
2: I guarantee you, it was better that way. If she'd ever got to know him, you know, I'm sure he would have disappointed her eventually.
3: How do you know? You don't know them.
2: Yeah, I know, I know. It's just people have these romantic projections they put on everything, you know, it's not based in any kind of reality. Romantic projections?
3: Yeah. Oh, Mr. Romantic up there in the fairies. Oh, kiss me, the sunset. Oh, it's so beautiful. Oh, all right, right all right, all right. Hey, tell me about your grandma. What
0: are you saying about her?
3: <laughs> no.
2: <laughs> Thank God.
0: So... Linklater and Kim Krasan had worked out a template for the script of what would become Before Sunrise. From the get-go, Linklater um, had always been up front with Krasan saying that um, he wanted to involve whoever the two leads were for for this film in the writing because it was going to be such an intimate story. And in order to believe um, a movie that's about you know, the ethereal notion of making a human connection with someone, you had, to, you had to buy it. The actors had to sell it. So their words needed to be formed from their own minds. So that he wanted the actors involved. Krazan and Linklater worked together, kind of uh, coming up with this template for just shy of two weeks and eventually came out with what would be around like 35 pages of a script. Linkladder didn't really have a setting for this because he also didn't have anyone buying it, nor did he have a budget for it, but he thought I could always rely on the San Antonio train station. He knew that really well. Um, if he couldn't get funding, it was close to home and it would save money. So if all else fails and he wasn't ever able to sell this, he knew he could go there. So um, same year. That he and Krasan are writing this, Dazed and Confused comes out, and he is promoting the film at the Vienna Film Festival. And it was there when um, he and who would become the uh, Before Sunrise um, executive producer. Uh, John Sloss, they discovered that there were European subsidies to be had if one were to film abroad. So he kept this in the back of his head. And at the same time at the Vienna Film Festival, um, he came across uh, Castle Rock Entertainment co-founder Martin Schaefer, and he read the script for Before Sunrise and thought it was a whole different take on not necessarily a rom-com but a romantic film and thought that this was totally Castle Rock material and they wanted to go ahead and green light this project to move forward. They were also um, very interested in shooting abroad and using those European subsidies. Um, So with Castle Rock's funding and being able to shoot an American movie overseas, this was going to um, not necessarily make it for on the cheap but would definitely take down the budget a little bit. And going back to that notion that Linklater had of when you are an American traveling abroad, you're much more likely to kind of throw caution to the wind. So now we've got pretty much a script-ish. But Linkladder knows he wants to involve the cast, so we've got a company behind us to put this movie out, and we've got a template for a script. It's time to move forward with casting. That would be about a six- to nine-month uh, process that would be a bi-coastal search for who would be the leads. And I think originally the... Characters were named Terry and Chris. They really didn't have a gender of either one because that's how loose this was. It wasn't necessarily aimless, but Linklater wanted to keep things open. But he didn't know if it was going to be a European male and an American female or vice versa, like what it ended up being in Before Sunrise. So eventually, after this multi-month search, it was whittled down to Ethan Hawke, Julie Delpy, uh, Michael Verten, who... um, Gosh, he's in like every rom-com, but Never Been Kissed is probably what he's most noticeable from. And Sadie Frost, who uh, plays, um, gosh, who is it? Is her name Lisa, I think, in Bram Stoker's Dracula? She's the one who gets real vamped out in yeah. the white dress. Anyway, so it was down to those kind of four actors. Delpy had the French accent working for her. She was also a very seasoned performer, very professional, had been around um, in the European market since she was a kid, but not necessarily in the American market. And at this time, Ethan Hawke was like he was blowing up. He was little Mister Stud Muffin, indie. Every every, I remember I remember my cousins Chrissy and Amy like thought that he was the, I mean, the biggest heartthrob in the world, and he was. I mean, come on.
1: Yeah, post uh, Dead Poet Society, he really had a break there he was doing uh making some weird choices i think he did like that really bad mystery date movie and then he uh
0: remember that was in
1: alive so he was doing some big budget hollywood movies but not really the lead um or if he was a lead the movies weren't as well made and so he, he also seemed like he was someone that was like very into theater balancing his time between being in plays and then also acting in movies
0: And that's actually how Ethan Hawke got this role was Anthony Rapp, who um, he's really well known now, but um, I guess uh, most known from Dazed and Confused or Adventures in Babysitting or Rent. But Anthony Rapp was in a play with Ethan Hawke and invited Linklater um, to see the play. And Rapp had also invited the cast of the play to see a secret screening of Dazed. Ethan Hawke saw that, totally fell in love with it. Um, and he and Linklater struck up a conversation. I mean, how how could you not? You've got indie director of the time and Mr. Hotshot indie movie star. Of course, they're gonna strike up a conversation, and they ended up hanging out until like 4 a.m. talking. And Linkladder eventually sent Ethan the script, and Ethan thought that he was offering him the role, and of course, he's like, well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Why wouldn't Why wouldn't I do this? But Linklater was not offering him the role. He was offering him the opportunity to read for the role, which, admirable. Linklater's not going to be, hey man, you might be hot, but I still want you to read for it because the important thing about this film was you needed to have chemistry with your co-star. And that co-star, Julie Delpy, she was one of the very first to audition at the LA auditions and she admitted... I. The more interviews I see with Delpy, like she is so funny and so charming and the things that come out of her mouth always surprise me, uh, including admitting that she was drunk during her first audition for this and didn't think that she was necessarily going to get a callback, but she did, um, was not drunk for her callback. Linklater was impressed with her extensive resume already. She'd worked all over Europe and immediately went to the top of link ladders list he thought she was just perfect for the role so when it came down to the four people that were at the top um hawk and delpy read together and their chemistry was instantaneous at that point and it kind of wasn't a question after that of who he was going to go with now the added pressure here was these actors were going to this was not only an acting job. This was also going to be a writing job. Justin, you mentioned Dead Poet Society for Ethan Hawke. and the director of that, Peter Weir, had given the actors an opportunity to uh, write dialogue a little bit for their characters in that film. and Hawke already had writing experience and the idea of writing more for this role and really being, you know involved in creating your character spoke to him. Delpy was intimidated kind of by the whole idea of Hollywood a little bit but thought it was such a fresh notion to be allowed to write for her character that that was really exciting but it was also terrifying I think for everyone involved but the excitement um over being in control of your character outweighed anything that was too overly
1: scary. And since it is us uh I will bring up Bill Murray for just a moment. Oh, yeah, in And that, uh, you know, many times you've talked about how Bill Murray has agreed to do a movie and then gotten the script and it's half made and they just sort of expect him to yeah. make it better. And so that's the immediate scenario that went through my head is like, um, these actors are like, what? You want us <laughs> to like finish your script for you? Yeah. But this situation seems so much more different because they wanted to get, the chemistry right it wasn't about uh you know just an actor coming in and adding jokes or like adding situations uh this was more about what would you guys say in this situation you know how would you react and the more that Linklater ladder questioned them about certain scenarios the more they were able to open up and say wait a minute i don't know that she would do this i don't know that he would agree to that or i don't know that he would get defensive about that and knowing that these two actors have to really convince an audience that they've met for the first time and it's a very fine line to walk because um, I've seen movies like this time and time again where it's all in one night usually takes place in New York and everything feels wildly scripted and it feels like (laughs) these actors are very comfortable with each other and this you know trying to have actors who feel comfortable together but also feel like this is so spontaneous and because of the style in which this movie was made in the way that Link Ladder approached it with having the actors be involved. There was a lot of, not criticism, but people talking about how the latter movies seemed to be totally improvised, which wasn't the case. I mean, they kind of took what was working, how they developed this movie, and then applied that even more heavily to the next two films.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that while Sunrise was scary for the actors uh, initially, it became easier in some ways for Sunset and Midnight. But at the same time, the pressure was on a lot more. So it was scarier in the sense that like they needed to at least recapture the magic of the first one, but have it be something completely different. So the scariness was uh, even though they were familiar with each other and the writing and how they worked together, which was awesome. It was scary in a whole other way. Now, the initial writing process, um, Delpy Hawk, Linklater and Krazan met for a couple days, but it would be Linklater, Delpy, and Hawk who went to Vienna the summer of 94 and started this uh, three-week intensive writing workshop um, that would continue throughout the 25 days of filming before sunrise. They really had to live together and create these characters together and throw out ideas. Delpy said that how Jesse initially... Asks um, Celine to get off the train how he did it it initially she said there's absolutely no way I would get off the train with you asking me like that so it was a lot of how are these people actually going to genuinely react where it's it becomes something that's more than just acting because in a sense you know you're being another person you're faking it in some ways but this has to be something that's unflappable that goes beyond just playing a role So Delpy added a lot of uh, the female perspective, which was in addition to Krasan's. And thankfully, I think Linklater knew that he needed that because his background had been very, very male-centered stories, like no shade or anything, but he knew that he needed that female perspective. Um, But that both Hawk and Delpy were putting a lot of their personal feelings and experiences at that time in their life into the script, along with the real story of course of, of Linklater's and trying to fit this into Linklater's vision which was a very clear of what he wanted um, and I think was a nice framework for the actors to have because they knew what he, exactly what he wanted and they could work within the confines of that but I can't imagine how daunting it must have been to try to recreate the most dramatic thing that had ever happened to Linklater at that point in his life he said and that's creating a genuine human connection, trying to make that believable, but they certainly really do pull that off on screen. And we talked so much about how Hawk and Delpy were involved in writing the script. Delpy said that the original screenplay needed a lot of, you know, revamping. Both she and Hawk said that they felt that there wasn't a lot of uh, romance in it, which was something that they had to really punch up, which that makes sense if you're involving the actors in the writing of their characters of course they're going to be the ones that punch up the actual romance factor in it now why didn't hawk or delpy get credit for helping co-write this film i don't think i've heard anybody say officially why that was but both actors said that they weren't exactly mad about it because they weren't sure if this movie was going to work anyway so if it was a flop cool their names weren't on it as a writing credit And Delpy said in an interview, too, that she felt that if their names had been on it, that the actors' names had been on it, that maybe the film wouldn't have gotten as far. Because sometimes, you know, I have heard that before when you see that four, six writers are on a movie, that it can be a total disaster. So if that was the idea behind it, I get it. I am glad that as the movies went on that that certainly wasn't the case anymore.
1: Yeah, and I definitely think when the other two movies came out, it's they put that front and center like co writing credit by Delpy and Hawk because they wanted to make sure there was no, I guess, confusion on their involvement in the script. And it totally makes sense with this being a romantic movie, there you know, in the beginning there is a lot of walking and talking, two characters getting to know each other, but as an audience, anytime you're watching these type of movies, you're like, Are these two gonna get together? You yeah. know, it's like what's what's what are we waiting for scene after scene? They're in a record store, they're, you know, hanging out in the street, they're eating dinner, they're in a cafe, like, you know, someone going to make a move. There is a little bit of anticipation there. It's like a little, I mean, this movie is like, A little bit anticlimactic at times but then at the same time you know I think about every television series I'd ever watch where they drag out a romance for like eight seasons you know where like they almost you know realize that they like each other so I think waiting like 45 minutes is, is not that big of a wait before you know you see these characters start to fall in love with each other and want to sort of anticipating like you know are we going to get physical with this and how are we going to do that because we're just kind of walking around the city and we don't really know where a lot of stuff is we can't afford to grab a, a hotel room for an hour but the way that the movie deals with all this I think is like really again a very a genuine way and that um they eventually are like you know let's get a little physical and like but let's continue on this like lovely evening at the same time
0: and that did they or didn't they post sex scene for me the the most romantic part of the film because everything before feels, it, it does feel like two people getting to know each other, but it feels like they're becoming friends. Like they actually do like each other. I think about the scene, the the pinball scene where they're playing pinball and they're talking about past uh, relationships and how they interact with each other. Um, the only level of flirtation that's in that is when Ethan Hawke says, oh yeah, I, my girlfriend or my ex-girlfriend. And she's like, wait, your girlfriend, you have a girlfriend. So There's those moments, but it's not until after like the the post sex where they're for me where it's the most romantic. Aside from the early record store scene, which like is a is a heart grab. Yeah. Um. But the moment when they're walking um through like the early morning in Vienna and they hear somebody uh playing an instrument and stop and look in and Ethan Hawke says, "Let me take a picture of you." And it's not he's not actually taking a picture of her. He's like taking a mental picture of her, and they do that back and forth like and then like what just like lay there uh somewhere in vienna until his uh until he has to leave for his flight like just enjoying the time with each other because they've already gotten to know each other they know each other they also are feeling the weight of the time that they have thrown to the wind and haven't even been thinking about um, parting until it's actually upon them. And so that for me is like the most, um, because it's like, it's the heaviest. It's when the movie actually becomes heavy is thinking about, well, shit, I think I have feelings for you after 12 hours. This is really weird. Um, Not even really weird. They don't think that it's weird. It just is. And how the movie wraps up Jesse Walking Celine to the train, like Justin, I you're not a crier at movies. I'm totally a cry a crier at movies. Man, does that one get me?
1: Well, and this idea of not uh, exchanging numbers, you know, not doing the obvious, um, seems a little bit odd to me at first when we yeah. you know was doing the rewatch. But then at the same time, um, they're so caught up in this moment of like, I want to spend every last second that we have, you know, i um, focused on this moment, not so much. Worrying about the future, you just want to savor the moment. And that to make a you know a pledge basically of like, hey, let's you know let's meet back here, and and then to end the movie without any sort of uh, epilogue, we just we don't know. You know, I mean, I mean, again, the answer is given to us a decade later. But for this movie not saying to be continued or anything, um, we're just left with our imagination of like. Did they both, uh, did he make the, the jaunt, you know, to get there or did, uh, you know, he get home and get a job and get wrapped up in life and was like, eh, you know, it was just a one night thing and forget about her, or, you know, same thing with her. I love that open-endedness about it. Don't get me wrong. I don't like that about every movie, but I think it like totally works in this scenario, um, with characters that we've just met and just have briefly spent a little bit of time with because, um, we know that they're living in this moment that they have other lives outside of this moment that they're gonna have to go back to. and you know, reality sets in the same way of you know when you're on vacation brain and then that Monday that you get back to work and it's like the night before and it's all like you know comes crashing down and you're like, oh shit, I gotta get up early <laughs> today and like I've got responsibility. and I think that this movie it you know we see that on the outset, but it's they just want to have this moment together. And I love the way that this movie ends. Never did I think in my life that when a sequel was announced for this that I was like, oh yeah, I've been waiting for a decade to find out what happened to these characters. I was like, oh yeah, Before Sunrise, that was a good movie. you know." But then I would have never expected the amazing connection that I would have in the first five minutes of a movie of two characters rekindling the last 10 years of their life in like, questioning each other on why why they didn't (laughs) keep up with each other
0: that whole idea because it is um something that does seem like why why didn't you exchange addresses at least you know and and i mean they say it you know it's it's sad i don't want to miss you i don't want to be sad we're gonna meet back here in six months so it's not even a question that's why we're not exchanging information but that whole notion is such a young person's Idea yeah. of not really taking into, even though you feel the weight of the moment and you feel like you never want to leave this person's side, you're not really taking into account that those connections don't happen that often. So just go ahead and exchange numbers. Make sure that if something happens, you know, in the future, and you're not able to meet up, that at least you can contact each other. Um, but again, young person's notion of not realizing that that meeting doesn't happen very often. And as we see in Before Sunset, um, they revisit that idea of why the fuck didn't we just like exchange information? Yeah. Our lives would have been completely different.
1: No, absolutely. But it again, it I think it it worked out for a really nice ending that you kind of weren't expecting. Um, it didn't feel like a standard Hollywood type ending where, he, you know, he's like, wait a minute. And he's like running along the train like I gotta yeah. give you my number. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Um, and when Before Sunrise came out, it wasn't, uh, you know, this this whole trilogy is, like, really well regarded now. But when Before Sunrise came out, um, it did decent business. It made its money back and a little bit of profit. It opened at the Sundance Film Festival, so it just gives you an idea of, like, I mean, back then, like, really small, low-budget movies would open Sundance and then hope to get picked up. Um, but since it already had a studio backing, it did get North American and international release, and it, you know, was critically... Uh, regarded link ladder also was uh lauded as a filmmaker who listens to actors and has really in touch with like what the youth are thinking um but not in such a MTV type way in more of a philosophical way and like a natural way of uh, how life and time works but at the same time it wasn't like he they were lining up to have him do uh, a big budget version of this you know and maybe those offers came through i'm sure that he got offers to do like romance type movies, but he's always been a filmmaker. That's like, I want to either collaborate or write what I'm going to direct. And, uh, so after before sunrise came out, he made another really small film. That was like a Sundance movie that, uh, really I don't think anybody saw. And it's a movie that did is one of my pick of the weeks way back in the day. Uh, And that is suburbia, not the eighties one that people know of mostly, but suburbia link ladder, 1996, 97 ish. Um, A really dark and funny, funny movie that uh, I think is his most like underrated gem of a film. I watch it like once a year and I think it's a hilarious movie, even though there's a lot of darkness in that movie. And, uh, you know, and then after that, he did try his hand in another studio movie, Newton Boys. That movie was not successful And but he teamed up again with Ethan Hawke. Then Linklater kind of goes into this like experimental stage where he's doing Waking Life and uh, works with Ethan Hawke and Delpy again, and they have uh, a little bit of a moment in Waking Life. And then does an experimental type digital movie for like no budget called Tape, also with Ethan Hawke. And so at the time, you know, he was still working very much in like low budget movies, staying in Austin, but then. Um, he has his biggest hit in a movie that we love that we talked about not too long ago on the podcast, School of Rock, which really makes Linklater a hot commodity, you know, in Hollywood, and then also with actors that want to work with him. Coming off of that movie, I never would have imagined that, uh, I, and I, I feel like I can kind of remember this when it was announced because I was living in Austin at the time, and like everybody always talked about Linklater, you know, what's he doing, what's he's working, what he's working on. Um, when it was announced that he was, uh, they were going to make a sequel to Before Sunrise. It seemed like the weirdest decision, but also, you know, coming off of a smash hit like School of Rock, but also like very link ladder. Yeah, let's do this. Let's bring these characters back. And but again, and I said this before, I I just don't I don't think I was prepared for like how much this movie was going to impact me and how wonderful a little 80-minute revisit of these characters would be. But it was really really, you know, surprising I think to a lot of people. Um, let's take a break. Let's go to this uh, just the, the, the meetup in Before Sunset, right in the beginning of the movie, right after uh, Jesse does his little. He's in a bookstore and he's doing a QA about his book. And the book is about this night that he had with Celine. And he looks over and he sees her and he hasn't seen her in 10 years. And immediately he's just like, you can tell like he's kind of like wrought with emotion. He's distracted. He's like still trying to answer questions in this Q&A but what he wants to do is just like go talk to her immediately and then they have this one of the best I think like if you're going to do a sequel this is the way to do it this is how to reconnect characters um, by having a real conversation summing up the time that we've missed in this gap which is a decade which is a pretty large portion usually sequels are like you know and then three months later they went on this (laughs) adventure so let's take a break we'll go that scene we'll come back we'll get into uh before sunset
3: Did you show up in Vienna that December?
1: No.
2: Uh, did you?
3: No, I couldn't, but did you? I need to know it's important to me.
2: Why, if you didn't?
3: Well, did you? Oh, Oh, thank God you didn't. Uh, Well, thank
2: (laughs) God uh, (laughs) God you didn't. (laughs) I mean, thank God, I did, not oh. and you did. I mean, if one of us had showed up there alone. Then that would have sucked.
3: I know. I know. I was so concerned with that. I, I always felt horrible about not being there, but I couldn't. You know, my grandma died a few days before, and she was buried that day, December sixteenth. She that died day, the, the
2: one in Budapest. Yes, you remember that? Yeah, I remember everything.
3: Of course, it was in your book. But anyway, <laughs> so. I was about I was about to fly to Vienna, you know, and uh, and I and we heard the news about her, and uh, of course I had to go to the funeral with my yeah, parents. Yeah,
2: I'm sorry to hear that. I don't
3: know. But you weren't there anyway. Wait, why weren't you there? I would have been there if I could have. I made plans and... Wait, you better have a good reason. What? Oh, no. No, you were there, weren't you? Oh, no! Oh, that's terrible! Oh, no, I'm laughing, but I don't mean it. Uh, Did you hate me? You must have hated me. Have you been hating me all this time? You have. No. Yes, you have. No. Oh, but you can't hate me now, right? I know. I I, I, I don't
2: hate you, all right? Come on, it's no big deal, all right? (sighs) I flew all the way over there. You blew the thing off, and my life's been a big nosedive since then. But I mean, it's not a problem. No, you can't no, I'm say kidding. that. I'm oh, I
3: can't believe it. I, you must have been so angry with me. I'm so sorry. I really wanted to be there more than anything in uh, the world. Hon- I swear, honestly, I mean, you I, can't I swear. be angry. Not you. my grandmother. I mean, no, you can't... I know.
2: I know. I honestly thought that something like that might have happened. I, I was definitely bummed, but. Mostly I was just mad we hadn't exchanged any phone numbers or any I know, information. I know.
3: That was so stupid. No way to get in touch. I know. I didn't we even had know last to go thing. On. I know, I know.
2: I mean, oh. remember, we were both afraid that if we started writing and calling that it would slowly, you know, fade out.
3: Yeah, it definitely wasn't a slow fade. No, it sure wasn't. <laughs> I know, we wanted to pick it up where we left Which off.
0: Which would have been fun yes. it So it was Linklater's waking life in 2001 that sparked the interest within Delpy, Hawk, and Linklater to Hey, these characters are still with us. They're still familiar and the story's not done. So that little snippet of Jesse and Celine in Waking Life is what sparked this new interest in and in, uh, before sunset. It doesn't mean that they weren't scared to revisit this entire film and and see where it goes, but the characters were still there and they wanted to do it. Um this would also be uh what they this trio of uh writers like to say the lowest grossing indie movie to spawn a sequel they weren't sure are they the only people that are going to care about this sequel are people going to go see it but it's what needed to happen for them Um, Delpy was actually fired by her agent for even getting involved with this project she says that you know her agent was like this is a waste of your time you don't need to be doing this I've got you an audition for rush hour three that's what you need to be doing and they parted ways on that Sunset came at a time in Hawk's life where he was going through marriage troubles with Uma Thurman and he said that doing this movie saved his life. It came at a time where he needed to revisit these characters. With Linklater, he knew that there needed to be some things that were a little different about this. He wanted this movie to be in real time, still have that walking, talking Um, same sense of before sunrise that the story would take place in Paris, but they wouldn't be shooting the sights of the city. It would just be the background. Same thing as what they did in Vienna. I I haven't really heard Linklater say this, but it's pretty obvious when he came out with before sunrise, there was a sense and, and hope of wanting to reconnect with Amy, the real life woman in his life that inspired this entire story. So beginning the movie with basically how he started before sunrise with the Jesse character writing a book about his time meeting Celine. This is how he thought that this made sense to start the film. He also knew that there was no way he could control um, anyone's level of interest in this film, but these three were dead set on doing this. Kim Krizan was involved for a little while. Um, all four were sending ideas back and forth to each other. They were trying to develop an idea for a larger budgeted sequel, but they couldn't find the funding for it. So Krizan kind of, I wouldn't say she wasn't involved in the writing process anymore, but she kind of wasn't. These were, um, you know, her characters that she helped create, but it did just kind of boil down to Linklater, Delpy, and Hawk. They reworked some ideas that were unused from the Sunrise script and tried to rework that into Before Sunset. They started emailing and faxing each other ideas. Um, basically, Delpy and Hawk would send ladder monologues and dialogue, and he would edit them together, try to form some type of cohesive script, and then they would get together in one room and make this kind of all come together. At some point, um, I think like 2003, um, this was you know a hodgepodge of a script in a sense that all three of them had different screenplays or pieces of and that's what before Sunset ended up being was everything that they just kind of put together and Linklater took out the pieces that weren't going to work. Sunset was filmed over 15 days. Um, there is a lot of walking and talking in this, but I think that it adds to the overall speed of the film. It is a quick 80 minutes and that steady cam usage that's all throughout the film is, um, I mean, it's just like kind of nonstop. And the movie's also shot in sequence. Not that that necessarily matters because it's not like Linklater just used 80 minutes of film obviously but I think shooting this movie in sequence had to help in keeping up the momentum of this film you've got 80 minutes to reconnect and Uh, nine years of your life together and cram in as much as possible there were some difficulties it was really hot at this time in Paris and also with uh, a movie that's called Before Sunset this is going to be an issue when you're trying to match the color of the sky time of day that's going to be much more of a problem than Before Sunrise when you just need to shoot at night but overall this film um, was delivered on time within budget and pretty much I think came out to be I kind of go back and forth on what's my favorite of the series. And right now, right now, before sunset, yesterday, it was before midnight, before sunset. That's what I'm going to say now.
1: Same for me. This is my favorite of the trilogy, um, really by a large margin. And what I love about this movie so much is that even though we get that all the answers to our questions from the first movie in the first five minutes of this film, Linklater and Delpy and Hawk with the script and the characters don't choose to just end it right there. You know, they don't do this quick little catch up scene. And then now this is the new adventure of Celine and Jesse. They keep coming back to that moment because it's a hot issue for them. They want to talk like normal people. Oh, here's what we're doing now. But they keep coming back to that moment that night, you know, it was so incredible. It's what I've been thinking about for 10 years. You know, he's like, I wrote an entire book about it. So (laughs) I love that The movie keeps going back to that. And I also love that this film gets the audience excited about the idea that, hey, all your dreams have been answered. You've all been waiting for this moment, you know, that they'll rekindle. You found each other. He wrote this book. He was kind of probably hoping that you'd come to this bookstore, and you did, and everything worked. And then we get the sucker punch that both of them are in relationships. He's (laughs) married with a kid. She's in a pretty serious relationship. I love this slow unwind of oh okay they're married oh wait a minute they're in relationships that they don't like now we're going into an even more intense moment in this movie and this again it's 80 minutes long they're in the car and he's revealing that he's not happy with his marriage she's revealing that now that they've rekindled this moment it's like shaking her up so much she's like ready to leave him just leave this cab and uh, it gets so intense, and I love that it, everything stays in the moment. This is one of those movies that truly feels like we're in real time. The movie keeps the actors moving. You know, they're walking, they go into a cafe, they get on a boat, but at, they're in the cab. So the camera stays stationary on them, even though we're getting movement from transportation, but it doesn't feel um, so deliberate that it feels forced, like, oh, let's get him in the cab so we can change up the situation. Um, you, you kind of ignored the background. I love that they you know, were like, let's not show the sights of Paris. This isn't about a romantic movie in Paris. This is about two characters that are in different points in their life, and for the last 10 years they've romanticized for this moment, and now they're face-to-face, and there's a lot to unpack, and they unpack the entire thing over the course of 80 minutes to where— I feel like fully satisfied with this short of a film. You know, not to get crazy about it, but I honestly feel like this is one of the better sequels that's been created as far as like continuing on a story of two characters that we care about. But then, once we learn more about them, the idea of this third film uh, becomes so enticing because guys, you have another chance now. I mean, you, you've you been so honest with each other and where you're at in your other lives. Are you willing to push everything aside to like live, you know, continue on together and not let another 10 years of the rest of your lives go by and wondering what if we exchanged information this time and kept <laughs> up with each other?
0: Yeah, right. That question is one of the first things that, that Jesse says. How would our lives be different? How we just exchanged information? Why didn't we do that? And Sunset continues on with the same kind of themes of being in the moment, of um, fate and chance and missed connections. But Sunset is, in that respect, so much more of a sucker punch because we feel like these people are the exact same people they were when they met they're just older with different life experiences but have been so profoundly affected by their interactions with each other that in some ways they haven't been able to move forward in a lot of ways because while they have been trying to do that they've never really let go of what happened between them and you know, it, it is a romantic notion to think that you can be that affected by someone, but I, I mean, they sell it really well, and I believe it. The spontaneity of this movie feels much more um, alive than uh, I think the rest of the series. Not that I mean, the rest of the series definitely feels very up and like like it's it's happening in real time, but this one's just kind of like a different pace, I would say. When the film switches from us reconnecting with jesse and Celine, and them getting past like where they are in their lives i think it's a good 40 minutes in before we learn that they're both in relationships and isn't that um a coincidence that neither one of them divulged that information until way further in the film like after they have both i think even jesse's made reference to oh, I wish we could just get out of here and have sex. Or he says something like kind of jokingly. She says something like that. Like they're both flirting back and forth. And then it's way later that they both say, oh yeah, I'm in a relationship. And it's even just a little past that when Celine finally gets to her breaking point of, you know what? I uh, I liked your book and everything, but like it really fucked me up, and I haven't. I feel like I haven't been able to move past where I am. I think that the story arc in this is very unexpected, in the sense that Sunrise is very much a build up, and then you know it kind of never goes down. Like even when they part, you yeah. you know you part, it's still an up moment. This one is like. We're great. We're good. We're good. Oh, shit. They have both been so profoundly affected by each other and not seeing each other. Why didn't they exchange information? And then once we get past that, we come back up because now they have the opportunity to where Jesse had to leave in the end of before sunrise. He has the option to just not get on that
1: flight. And I I do really appreciate the way we get to that point Mm -hmm. in this movie because there's certainly the style of the second film is similar to the first one, but we don't have a bunch of like winks and throwbacks and all that kind of stuff that sequels always tend to do. Sure. But when it gets toward the end of the film where something seems familiar, it's like we know that just as well as the characters know that their time is limited and it's going to come to a close – And now they're faced with a similar situation that they were in the first film. And uh, once again, I love that we're not at some airport where she's watching him take off in a plane. He goes to her apartment. She's like, dude, you're like really gonna be cutting it close here. Like, you know, don't you need to like call the driver and get, you know, get all your stuff arranged. And he's like, no, no, it's okay. And then it's open-ended, but we get the sense of like, you know, she's like, you're gonna miss your plane. He's like, yeah, I know. And what a way to really uh, suggest a big decision by two characters and then just cutting to black
0: I think it's through Celine's way of I I think she says at least three or four times you're going to miss your plane you've got to go you gotta you know don't you have to leave three or four times she says that it's on her last one when the movie closes it's like and right there, that is why I'm in love with these two characters, because the three or four times that she says it before, it's like, oh, no, you, you got to go. You got to go. And then the last one's like, she knows he's not leaving. And yeah, he knows that she knows
1: you're reminded often in this film why you love these characters, too, because they are characters that because of the situation and the scenario that they're in, they're living moment to moment. And so it makes sense for Celine to like flare up in the cab and be crying and upset and almost want to exit the cab. And then an hour later be lip syncing and talking about going to a performance and dancing in front of Jesse. Again, living in the moment, these characters are, they understand as well as we do. Like we, the audience are in tune with their feelings um, of you got to live it up. You may not see this person again. And you've had all these feelings built up. And there's so much about these movies that are relatable, I think, in relationships, and it's handled really, really well. I think the third film delves into more of the darker side of adult relationships and and living with each other for a long amount of time and and becoming older. And this uh, movie handles this moment of like we're out of our 20s. Uh, we're starting to identify who we are as a person, but we're missing this certain element, this certain person that we connect with. And so, you know, immediately when you have that, you start to think about uh, in my life, you know, what have I done? Who have I met? Who are the people that influence me? Who are my heroes? And to have that sitting right in front of you, it's a big moment. It's a big time to take a chance. And so this movie gives an answer to that, Sort of, again, leaving it open-ended, but giving us just so much room for a third film to enter into this series, which again seems unlikely. But um, having seen all three of these, especially one after another over the course of a few days, it's wild to me how they were filmed uh, 10 years apart because they just fit so well together and the characters seem so seamless.
0: It also feels... Like sunset is more of Celine's movie to me than um, than Jesse's. That's not saying it's not equal. It's definitely equal parts, but it feels like her role is much more prominent. I think after sunrise, Julie Delpy was getting a lot of offers for roles for for women who were the you know kind of girl on the pedestal sort of thing, and in in, in some ways, she is. but in sunset, while she is that definitely that Jesse's been putting on a pedestal, she is definitely way more centered in herself and very um she's she's made a way for her life and she's has the opportunity to offer up more interesting information about who she is. And it almost seems like she's matured more than maybe Jesse has, but um fundamentally still the same people. and that's one question that this trilogy has all throughout is you know are we the same person that we've always been since the beginning also from a writing standpoint i think before sunset has the most amount of quotable lines there's one that's um memory's a wonderful thing if you don't have to deal with the past and i could go on i i wish i could uh deliver that monologue that delpy does in the car where she just kind of goes off on jesse for how this book how how someone writing a book about you and their memory of you and you not really having any control over that and also not having had contact with that person, how it's just a immobilizing and like very, very frustrating feeling. Um, her monologue is like one of one of my favorite things about the film.
1: I totally agree. Yeah, that and the the meetup for me are just the meetup, yeah. excellent scenes.
0: I also gotta love that Julie Delpy has four songs in this film, most prominently the one Uh, that she sings to Jesse in the climax of the film, which is like, what a moment. Everything about that is such a a beautiful moment that it's like brings you to your knees a little bit, but has a gorgeous voice. I I love that um, you can hear sprinkles of the other songs in the movie. I think the movie opens with one of her songs, too. On top of being the lead actor writing the script, you also have songs in the film.
1: Yeah, and that is a very, uh, man, such a tricky thing to do. Like, when you have someone who's like nervous about performing something like as a character in the movie. And then, uh, the fact that it's, you know, her song, her singing and that they play the entirety of the song. I mean, she performs to Jesse, but like, it's so intimate that we're, I mean, the most voyeuristic scene of the movie is like her opening up and like, you know, the suggestion that the song was written about him and her inserting his name um, and though he makes a, a joke about it that's really funny, like I bet you you just changed the name, it shows how quickly each of them can be vulnerable with each other, even though they, I mean combined, have known each other less than 48 hours. Yeah, uh, It's just a very unique way to do a scene, and I appreciate the fact that it, it lets it play out. This movie's 80 minutes long, but because of scenes like that, you feel like you've seen more than you actually have because of the intimacy of the characters and what we're getting to see them, uh, how we're getting to see them interact with each other and share with each other.
0: And they never kiss in this movie, do they? They don't. I love that.
1: Yeah. Well, when this movie came out, it did about the same amount of business as the first film, but it was very critically acclaimed. Uh, A lot of people like myself were shocked at how amazing a a sequel could be to a very low budget movie from the mid 90s. (laughs) And so Linklater had already kind of um, at this time had, you know, he was doing more, I would say, like bigger budgeted movies or like Hollywood type films still with his own little spin. But he, you know, not a director for hire, but definitely like not as small as these movies are, Um, but still kind of it seemed like he was balancing his his time between working on this, working on other bigger films, Um, also Around this time is when he had the notion to do the movie Boyhood, which if you haven't seen, is basically even a more uh, meditative movie on aging. And it's, you know, he follows this kid who wasn't really like an actor, actor, Ethan Hawks in it as well, and Patricia Arquette. Um, it's a fantastic movie, but it's, if you dig the before trilogy, Boyhood is a little bit different. It's more of like a coming of age tale told in a way of like how the before trilogy is in that style and so you know he kept meeting up with the actors and they would do a scene and then they would wait a few years and so you see this kid essentially grow up on screen over the course of like two hours and 45 minutes it's a long movie but it's really worth it and so you know link letter continued his journey with like playing with time and how that takes a toll on relationships and so once we get to this third film before midnight these characters have been through a lot and we kind of see it's sometimes a rocky road in relationships and that wasn't really hinted at in the other films but this film the third film and it needed to go somewhere different it really needed to delve into something I think a little bit more uh, along the lines of like let's get some plot let's get some you know what are these characters uh where have they been are they living together what's going on and man you we really get like (laughs) a mouthful of like how they feel about each other and how maybe they've grown apart but let's take a break we'll go to a, a clip from uh before midnight and then uh we'll get into that to round out this before trilogy
2: look at us here we are we are in you know the garden of eden and we can't stop fighting
3: i don't think there's one natural human state the human state is multiple. I mean, if that's what you see when you're watching the girls play, that means you're depressed.
2: Okay. Maybe I am.
3: No, but uh, when I see them fight, I see beautiful energy of going forward in life and not letting mm-hmm. anyone step on them or take away what they want. You know, I like it when they fight. It gives me hope for them. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, that's because you see anger as a positive emotion, you know? <laughs> you only end up hurting yourself, your work, the kids, me.
3: And you never get angry?
2: When I do, I don't see it as a positive.
3: You know something? The way you write in your books, people come up to me and think I make love to some wildcat Henry Miller type. Ha! You like to have sex the exact same way. Every time. Mm.
2: When you got it, you got it.
3: Kissy, kissy. Titty, titty.
2: Pussy. I'm a man of simple pleasures.
3: Yeah, very simple. And I've been meaning to tell you that lately. You know Henry Miller on any level. Mm -hmm. And you know what? (laughs) This room gives me the creeps. You know, I was I was expecting something quaint, like the real Greece. This
2: place is pretty real. What the hell are we
3: doing here anyway? This is all too planned, like we're supposed to have this great evening, you know? There's no room for spontaneity. It is all gone from our lives. Right. And this is stupid and it's not working. Okay. Well, obviously. And and, I curse Ariadne and that Perf Stephanos for doing this. Okay. A couple's massage. What the fuck is that? That sounds sleazy to me, right? don't have
2: to do it! Okay. Come on. This place isn't so bad. I like hotel rooms. I think they're sexy. Yeah, I know you do.
1: Now getting to the third film in this trilogy... The first movie, I the way I felt about it was like, oh, this is really nice. You know, it's just like this nice moment with these two people. There's It's romantically charged. Uh, the second film kind of blew me away with just how genuine and heartfelt it was, but like, you know, still had this vibe of the first movie where it's like romantic, but these characters are, are dealing with real emotions and real problems in their life. Then we get to this third film where you're just like richard linklater you son of a bitch you're like why are you making me like be self reflective about my life and like the the questions that and emotions that come out in this movie this was the movie i think that like sparked us having just like kind of heart to heart off mic conversations about life and you know, where we're at. And it, yeah. and it's very, this, this movie hits, hits you in the gut. I mean, several times, especially if you've been in a relationship for a long time or been married for a long time. And if you have kids and those kids are, you know, you have different ideals about how to raise kids and different ideals about, um, where you want to live. And it's, it's very, um, unique in a sense that this movie tackles these issues head on so delicately at times but at the same time so in your face uh to where it's kind of unlikable at times like I I feel like uh, there's a real shift in these movies where in the first film Jesse's kind of bombastic and annoying and cocky and then in the middle movie we we kind of have a a sympathy for both of these characters and a a love for both these characters. And then this one, the approach is like, Jesse's the more level-headed one and Celine goes off half-cocked and gets, you know, I wouldn't say she's unlikable, but like she's like more on the attack, you know, in their discussions about their relationship and potentially getting a divorce. This movie's totally different in the sense that we're not solely with Jesse and Celine the entire film. You know the characters are separated from times. The movie opens with Ethan Hawke and his son from his previous marriage, uh, and then we are reunited with Celine and Jesse, and they're spending time in Greece. They've been there the entire summer, and there's there's been a fork in the road. They have twins that are like eight or nine, but they've they've grown apart we don't get that sense in the beginning of the film, the beginning of the film, we just get the idea that like these guys have been together for nine years. Now, all of that post Vienna romance has kind of maybe dwindled out a little bit because they're dealing with the day to day of like taking the kids to school and, you know, cleaning up after each other and, going their separate ways in their careers but once we get to the heart of the movie of like their the fork in the road of their relationship i think the movie switches gears and it becomes the darkest one in the trilogy but at the same time the most real and i think the most uh relatable in terms of like how we as humans struggle and work hard in relationships and marriage
0: yeah for me midnight is like i said before i vacillate between this one and sunset if it's my favorite i think Sunset is the most enjoyable watch for me. Midnight is the one that really hits home and I relate the most to. I mean, not that I have kids or I'm in a nine-year relationship, but the um, from beginning to end, their story and experience is something that um, to. One degree or another, I am familiar with. And so when we get to this breakdown of, I don't want to say breakdown, but the um, conflict in, in their marriage, it is something that's like, if you've ever experienced it, it's really something that you're going to feel like you said, come on, Link Ladder, you really got to make me face face reality here. But Midnight also deals with all of the same things that the previous movies um, did as well. You know, how does time change us? Um, Does it change us? Are we the same people that we were in Sunrise? How have our decisions before affected us now? Like, okay, Jesse and Celine are together now, and... Jesse and Celine wouldn't be together if Jesse hadn't cheated on his wife. Now, Jesse has a complicated relationship with his ex wife because he handled that breakup poorly, and she hates Celine. It's all of these decisions and the idea of fate and chance and everything that's led us to the point that we are. Midnight overall is the one that deals the most with um, aging and the idea, like memory, and how we deal with the past. Um, and how it affects our our present. I don't want to put a a certain darkness on this movie. I still think that this movie is intimate, incredibly intimate, um, intelligent, honest, very naturalistic. It shows that these two still have this longstanding relationship and connection. And, I mean, they're still flirting. Um, I think Jesse, he could probably um, serve to keep growing or keep maturing a a little bit more he still is is that uh immature american guy and um i think that that's frustrating for celine who um feels that her husband isn't really seeing all of the sacrifices that she's made for their marriage but it does really turn the mirror around on us and and shows us how relationships can have communication breakdowns and um The idea of compromise is a really big theme throughout this film. But that's not to say that the underlying feeling of love and romance, being in a relationship with someone, this isn't about a couple that's breaking up. It's about a couple that's going through it and needed a chance to actually communicate with each other and actually talk about things and probably something that they don't really have a lot of time for and Justin you mentioned the the lunch scene before where we actually see Jesse and Celine with other people we never see them previously in the other films with other people and I know you said off the mic that this scene kind of stands out for you and I agree it stands out because we never see them with other people um I do think like it in a sense because it does kind of recenter us around that notion of aging and memory and connection with another person, where we're discussing how relationships can be fleeting, how they change over time, or, um, What's important in life, your relationship, your romantic relationship, your friends or your work? What's your priority? While Sunrise and Sunset, much more on the sunrise end, have all of these ideas, these um, philosophies and bigger worldly conversations. Midnight stays focused in the sense of really honing in on the relationship between two people. Um, I like that about this film, even though it is much darker and frustrating than the previous
1: two. To me, this movie stands out in the sense that the first two films are essentially uh, movies that are taking place in the present. The the first movie, it's taking place solely in the present. And then the second film, it's a movie about being in the present, but romanticizing the past. And the third film is about self-reflection. It's like they don't want to live in the moment. because they realize that the moment is rough but they're just there there's all this self-reflection on why is the present not good and we we want to get back to this you know we can't we can't go back to like this moment that we had built up so much in our head and now they get to be together and it's you know again uh it it goes back to the age-old grass is always greener you know once they got together and lived for a while. It's like, oh, is this any different than any other relationship I could have been in? You know, was this really the person that the one person in the universe that was like my soulmate could have been another person that I could even been happier with? And so in those ideas are explored in this movie, um, where the movie really kicks in for me, because in the beginning when they're arguing and you're complaining and, oh, life is tough. You're able to vacation in Greece for three months. Seems like a pretty pleasant, relaxing, you know, people are just sitting around eating Greek food and talking about music and literature and their lives. You know, you're like, okay, get over yourselves. But then we get into the real meat of their relationship and how they feel about each other. And it's really cutting. I think other movies have tried to approach this. And what we, you, you end up getting is like the uh, Oscar reel scene where the characters is like, they're shouting at each other and this is like their acting moment. And man, this movie doesn't feel like that at all. I mean, we have those scenes in this film, but they feel like really raw and um, and then they settle. And very much like I think how real life works to me is it. The scene doesn't end with someone smashing something against the wall or like, well, you know what? Maybe I don't love you anymore. And they walk out and then we cut to the next day. Uh, They argue and then it calms down for a minute the way real arguments happen. They're more mature and they're aware of their issues. They're aware of their problems. They're blowing off steam. And we're getting, again, like this voyeuristic view of them blowing off steam with each other and them sort of self-projecting. But then... They talk about some real issues, and I think real issues that are totally relatable to relationships, especially with kids and, like, wanting to, you know, he wants to move to Chicago to be closer to his son. She is about, could potentially start a new career where they're, you know, in Paris and he's wants to live in America, and there's so much friction going on in this movie.
0: Here's the shit about that, though, is that Jesse wasn't man enough to say that. She had to drag it out of him. And that's I agree. and that's where I feel frustrated for Celine. And I'll and I'll say this, even though I probably in reality am more like Jesse's character than I am Celine, um, I completely understand what Celine where where her frustration is coming from and why she kind of goes off because she's trying to get the truth out of him and he's giving it like piecemeal or just kind of pansy. Yeah. And you're like I understand. And this has all probably been bubbling up for her. I do admire Jesse's way of trying to keep it um, even and trying to keep it um, level-headed. But at the same time, when your partner's mad, you doing that and you seeming superior is not going to quell the situation.
1: I agree. And I, I, you know, and earlier I said- Are we fighting right now? (laughs) Well, no, but earlier I did say that her character was a little unlikable. Maybe that was like harsh because- I think what I'm getting from her character is like she's a realist. Jesse still wants to be, he wants to hang on to the fantasy. He wants to hang on to that moment where she is a very pragmatic person, lives a much more normal life than he does, you know, like he's writes and then he goes off and does like book tours and all that kind of stuff where she is probably working more closer to a nine to five regular person job. And then also trying to manage the children. So, you know, That she's more tense so maybe that's where the word i was looking for not unlikable but she comes off as much more tense in this film than jesse's character also too i think we see his character annoyingly is like sex is on his mind about every hour still and so his first thing about if they're fighting it's just like oh well how about if we just have sex and the sensation from that will wash away this argument where she's like that's you know not, not going to work. Happen. Yeah, you, you you brought this up and now we're talking about it. Let's finish this conversation. And he doesn't want to finish the conversation. He wants to talk about it a little bit, that, but then play games. And I think we see toward the end of the movie that it's his go-to. That's his self-defense mechanism. And she's not really having it. But then we see her like get a little more gentle and it's like, I'll give you this if this is the end. You know, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to – I don't want this to be – I don't want to be so harsh about it, and it's it's a very bizarre way to end the movie. It's my least favorite of how these three movies end, but I still like the approach in that um, they're essentially playing out the fake version, the unreal version of their characters, and not Jesse and Celine present day because they were like, if we let go of that, then we're you know what what are we? We're just arguing in the hotel room and, and want to get a divorce.
0: Another very relatable theme that I think has been all throughout the series, but we see how it changes for two people who are who, who meet this progression of a relationship is insecurity. And I think in the beginning, there's a lot of confidence, a lot of kind of, you know, a little bit of blustering. In the second one, we have, you know, do I look the same as I did nine years ago? Oh, what, you thought I was fat then? And, you know, he's, you know, Jesse's doing the same thing. Like the insecurity there it's a little bit more playful, um, but it's still real and it's still something that people deal with no matter what stage of your relationship. But in Midnight, the insecurity, I'm very, very thankful that it is shown that it's not just Celine, that it's also Jesse, too, which I, I think in most films, insecurity is always going to be put off on the female character. And her, her insecurities have, have kind of always been the same, that he's a philanderer, he's been cheating on her, and she's probably right. Um, his insecurity is over the relationship that she has with his son that that is might be a little bit closer than what he um, has with his own kid. I think that that's very telling of the minds that were involved in creating the script, that Linklater, Delpy, and Hawk all brought what had been happening in their lives to this, more so um, than probably ever in everything from the previous films. As much as we talk about how this film is um, difficult at times, not difficult to watch, but just difficult in that it really just smacks you in the face as far as difficulties of relationships, It was also um, a much more self-conscious film and uh, divergence in tone from Sunrise and Sunset. But it was also a really stressful, kind of not fun experience to crank out this story. It's not that it sounds like they didn't want to be doing it. It's just that Delpy, Hawk, and Linklater knew that they couldn't keep romanticizing the past that this is reality and that all of these times that we have been putting off reality that we've been putting off real time we're in real time now and this is it's harder it's harder than living in fantasy world and dwelling in nostalgia and romanticizing what we once were it was um, I think a 10-week process of creating this script it was a First started out with like four weeks of creating an outline, throwing ideas around and realizing that they needed to make this a much more grounded experience, but also something that was going to captivate audiences. They knew that this was going to be more emotional and have a lot more psychological aspect to it. They banged out about a 10-page outline and then for the next three weeks, um, continued to write this script but like the previous two films they were also writing while filming there was a lot more pressure to this film too because they knew that they had a deadline they had to get it done and because this one wasn't as enjoyable of an experience we'll say um, it presented a a welcomed challenge but it wasn't exactly easy Linklater definitely succeeded in keeping the story simple and straightforward, but even though it's 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 a harder movie to watch, I like that it ended up here because it it does feel like we needed to get to a reality point of Jesse and Celine, and that closing scene that you brought up just in the the finale of after Celine says, "You know what? I don't think I love you anymore." and and leaves and by the way, when she walks out of the hotel room, comes back in, walks out, comes back in, and walks out, that's real. People yeah. do that. i've been I've been the Ethan Hawk in that situation, and that there's so much truth that happens in that fight scene that it's really hard to watch sometimes. But when Jesse goes to Celine and she's saying, "Didn't you hear what I said? You're not listening to me. This isn't a joke. I'm being serious. his way of of trying to get her, to rethink things is the same Jesse as we saw in Sunrise. We see in that moment that they still are the same people um, when they initially met. It's just, they've gone through many years of life changes and experiences. And I think when we get to that climax scene, it can leave you with either a glimmer of hope if you've experienced something like this and say your relationship ended. You could see Jesse and Celine and think, maybe they're going to come out on on top and they're going to be okay after this and it could leave you with a sense of longing regret seeing how things could have been done differently in your life but watching how it starts out with Celine immediately rebuffing him and him still keeping not pushing her but still trying and trying and trying we have again that that small climb down and up again, the roller coaster that's with us throughout this entire trilogy, um, we have that in that climax scene. And when Celine gives in a little bit, that I think is your glimmer of hope. And depending on how you feel about um, relationships and how you feel about Jesse and Celine, I leave before midnight thinking that they're going to stay together.
1: Yeah, that's kind of like what my inclination is, is that yeah. they realize that this is a rough patch and that they got heated in an argument and things, you know, do become exaggerated in an argument. You're grasping at things immediately to throw at somebody and they're, they're not always airtight or logical and totally factual. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I think that we see a little bit of that represented in their arguments. But then, you know, this idea that she will play along with his bit that he's doing. Um, At first, she, you know, it's just like, come on, you know, this is annoying. And it actually... She's serious. and, and And it, he comes off a little, it's pretty like annoying. You're like, God, this is almost like humiliating. But then when she starts playing into it, he's putting in a little effort. So I'll play along. I know that'll make him happy. And like, it immediately calms the situation. You see that she knows how to fix him to get to get him to like relax and stop freaking out versus saying like, all right, well, let's get a divorce, which is kind of what you at first, like I I was kind of expecting of this conversation to be like, how do we going to proceed with a divorce? Like that's how I thought that it would end. And it totally caught me off guard. And the second time watching it, I appreciated it much much more this movie moves a lot slower and the scenes are a lot longer so there is more time to realize uh to kind of think to yourself because this movie is like makes you kind of think a lot about your own life so you can kind of drift into your own thoughts at times because they are long scenes in this but then once we get to the end in the second time i watched it when i kind of know what to expect um, i was able to settle in with those like arguments and and even the lunch scene you know settle in and just Relax with these characters, like you're hanging out with these characters for essentially an hour and 40 minutes or however how long this movie is.
0: I think that that's what this movie is. There's only one walking and talking scene and sunrise and sunset, that's all they were. We are with these characters um, during, I think it's five or six scene setups. And only one where they're walking and talking together, which is probably the happiest moment that they share together, but also employs many of the same things that we see before, flirtation, insecurity, um, their obvious connection that they have with each other, and years now of knowing each other better than anyone else knows the other one i like that this is the completion of the story i hope that there's not another one if there is i want it to be something totally different i don't know what that would be but i i, I like how this wraps up and i like to how we we do end on a question mark we don't know if they're yeah. still together and it depends on how you feel about relationships but that's how sunset and sunrise ended was on this idea of hope. So if we think that the third one ends the same way as the other ones, then we have a happier ending.
1: And I do uh, think too, it's like end on this note because the ideals I think are so big in your 20s, 30s and 40s are so different. You know, in your 20s, it's like, totally full of like hope and dreams and like anything could happen your 30s you're self identifying trying to figure out who you are and this movie I think does a good job of like you've you've come far enough in life to get a little bit cynical and you know uh you start thinking about the things that you know that you want that you can't have and then the things that you really don't like and those magnify you know you magnify on those And, and you know I mean not always but I think that's very relatable in life. This movie does a good job of showing those uh segments of time in, in our lives and like going beyond that we there's less I think there's less of change between our forties and fifties and sixties. You know, I mean you I I'm certainly you're starting to think about how you wanna finish your your life off, which is I think that might be too dark of a movie to handle. It's just like <laughs> I, I you know, it's like no one wants to hear like a conversation about how they're determining whether what age they should take out their retirement and guess when they're going to die, so that they can, <laughs> you know, have enough money to uh, uh, stick around an extra ten years. That doesn't sound like a very fun no film. one
0: wants that. Audiences were there for this movie. People wanted to see what Jesse and Celine, um, where they were at this point in life. Um, like the previous films, it more than doubled its budget. It premiered in uh, January of 2013 at Sundance. Um, and then went into wide release in June of the same year. Like Before Sunset, it was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. I think very, very well-deserved for both films. And like Sunset and Sunrise, um, got a lot of high praise and accolades, uh, widespread acclaim in general. And I feel like it really is the, um, the best bookend to this journey of Jesse and Celine. And even though it wasn't really planned that these films would be nine years apart, um, like it just happened that that's what happened with Before Sunset. And then they were planning a sequel that was to become Before Midnight. And originally it was going to come out 10 years afterwards, but people were able to adjust their schedules to make it nine years after. Um, We've already now missed that nine year mark, thanks to COVID. So I feel like maybe that's a sign that there shouldn't be a fourth one. And if there is, it needs to be way further down the line. Not that I don't want to see Jesse and Celine. I just want them to be together as someone who failed in, in my own personal before trilogy, um, real life experience. Um, I really hope that Jesse and Celine stay together and are together until the day they die.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, uh, I didn't have any final thoughts on this movie, but I kind of wanted to end on a recommendation. Um, and that's if you really enjoyed the Before trilogy and you liked Linklater's Boyhood, you, you might be familiar with the series. Uh, if you haven't, if, if you aren't, uh, the 7-Up series, it's a British production. It's a documentary series, a social experiment. And they picked these different kids, different facets of life, different classes and it starts when they're seven years old and the filmmakers would revisit these kids every seven years and they would reflect on what's happened in the last seven years. And, you know, they're already up to 63 up. So each, every seven Whoa. years, a, a new version uh, came out. And so I always wonder if, you know, that's what sparked Linklater's interest in this. And if you yeah. haven't seen this series, uh, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Like it's kind of mind blowing that the honesty that they're able to capture uh, in these uh, subjects that they've been following for years now, it's it's pretty pretty wild to watch. So if that's something, if you liked the this the way the style of these movies in Boyhood, I wanted to recommend the Seven Up series to listeners out there.
0: I feel really dumb that I've never heard of that. That's awesome though.
1: Well, I'll own it to you. I have it on DVD. I
0: would I would definitely love that. I had um, one final thought, and it seemed appropriate to save it until the end. Because um, it's not exactly the happiest thing. Um, and again, another reason that we want Jesse and Celine to stay together was that the um, we talked about her in the beginning, Amy, who was the original inspiration for Richard Linklater to write Before Sunrise. As it happens, in 2009, um, a friend of Amy's contacted Richard Linklater. I think this person worked at the toy store with Amy and said that he'd seen Before Sunrise and thought this is a somewhat of a familiar story and I I wonder if you're this guy he said that actually um, that Amy had died in a motorcycle accident and it was like Mother's Day of 1994 which meant that she never got to see before sunrise that's a rough one
1: it was nice that they did a dedication
0: it seems like the final kind of perfect bookend to be able to dedicate before midnight to her yeah I agree yeah
1: well, let's uh, let's stop there. Thank you so much for listening to somewhat of a different episode, kind of episode for us. It was a little more free form. Yeah. I kind of enjoyed it though. It was nice to we, we didn't really share e- our thoughts on the movie with each other as much as we normally do because we wanted to kind of go in this in a in a much more uh, spontaneous way. And I'm I,
0: glad I, we did that. <laughs> yeah, I am too.
1: I am too. And uh, so next month, we're we're going back to our regular schedule of we're going to release an episode a month. Next month, we're delving into uh, one of my favorite and most exciting moments of film, at least in my life personally, and that's the indie boom of the 90s. And uh, we've been talking about doing a Parker Posey episode forever, and so we're finally going to do it. Uh, Party Girl is going to be our main film that we're going to be talking about, but we'll be talking about Parker Posey's career in Uh, our picks of the week will be Parker Posey related so you have that to look forward to again uh, I don't care what Larry David says happy new year again (laughs) everybody and uh, we'll see you next month thanks for listening
0: thanks for listening and thanks for kicking off the new year with us guys